Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word together. And we pray that in everything we do, it'll help us to uh, know you more deeply so that we can love you more deeply and understand the purposes and plans that you're working out in history to ultimately accomplish your, your larger plans and purposes that you have revealed to us and given us insight into so that we can have hope. And uh, we thank you for all these things. Pray that you'd bless our time with understanding. And we ask all this for Jesus' great namesake. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all, today we're on page um, 26 in your notes. We're going to start in chapter 4. Just a little bit of review. Luke is uh, recording for us the early days of uh, the beginning of the church after the death resurrection, ascension of Jesus. And so what, what we've seen so far is the Holy Spirit has been poured out and Peter has preached a sermon. Peter, you know, the kind of the key apostle among the 12 men that Jesus picked out to carry his mission forward after he ascended back into heaven. Peter's preached his first sermon explaining what's happened uh, with the giving of the Spirit, but also making an argument that in Jesus' uh, crucifixion and resurrection, he has fulfilled Scripture. And now he is, as he says in 236, he is now both the Lord and the Messiah. And so we're in this critical time where people uh, are called to give their allegiance to him. His kingdom is coming, right? He is Lord over all creation. And he is um, awaiting the day, as Peter said in his sermon, when he will return and make his enemies a footstool for his feet. Uh, but that's also a day of salvation when the kingdom comes. And so Peter is explaining the significance of all these things. And uh, in that context, I'll just remind you that, this, that both Luke's gospel and the book of Acts is meant to show us how the crucifixion, um, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus have literally changed everything. And unless you understand the significance of those events, then you're not going to be properly oriented to reality and to life. So you need to understand what those things mean. And so all of these early sermons uh, that Peter gives orient us and orient his first audience to that reality. Uh, last week we looked at in chapter 3, uh, Peter and John are walking through the temple. There's a man who was born lame. Uh, he is healed in the name of Jesus. Peter preaches another sermon in response to the healing and again uh, makes a case for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. But also, as he's been doing in these sermons, he makes it very clear that the people uh, are culpable for their part in having Jesus crucified. And the only remedy for that is to repent, turn uh, what you're doing. In fact, uh, page 24, if you look at there just, just for a second, this is kind of where we left off last week. There was just a couple more things I wanted to say about that. In 317, right in the middle of page 24, at the end of his second sermon, uh, Peter concludes with this. He says, now, brothers, I know that you did this in ignorance. That is, uh, you know, we're complicit in the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, just as your leaders also did. Uh, but what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. So repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out and so that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. 
One of the things that, that I love about the, the differences in these two sermons, in the first sermon, um, Peter, as, he's, as he ties it into the things that are yet to happen, he focuses on the judgment aspect of when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, he's going to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. In this one, notice what he focuses on. He focuses on at his return, there's going to be times of seasons of refreshing. Right? And those of you that have done the studies on the end times with me before, uh, we know that all history is moving toward this final cataclysmic period of time uh, that centers on the day of the Lord, the day when the Lord appears back into history again. And that day, will, will two things will happen. He will bring judgment against his enemies and he'll bring salvation for his people, right? And so what we look forward to and anticipate and hope those who are not, who have not given their allegiance to Jesus is they look forward to it as a time of dread and fear. And so what Peter's saying is, uh, yeah, y'all were on the wrong side of things, but you can repent. You can turn back, right? You previously um, abandoned Jesus and called for him to be crucified, but now you can turn to him and you can find salvation. And that's what he ends with, uh, top of page 25. Heaven must welcome him until the time of the restoration of all things which God spoke about through the mouth of his prophets. And then uh, last week we ended here. He quotes from Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 16. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. And you must listen to everything he'll say to you. And everyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. That is one of the things that we're going to see as we go through Acts. Uh, we're going to see great numbers of people come to Jesus in faith. We're going to see another segment that turn away from him, uh, particularly among the people of Israel. Uh, and as they do so, we're going to see that they are cut off from God's plans and purposes for them because uh, Jesus has been sent um, as this last prophet, as the, the, the final prophet in a sense. Uh, well, not really the final prophet. Um, he is the preeminent prophet among all the others. You know, you, you, uh, Peter is going to prophesy. John is going to be given prophecy uh, years after this in the book of Revelation. But Jesus is the preeminent prophet. He is the prophet like Moses who defines what that whole relationship and what that whole office is about. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. But here, Peter makes a strong point that Jesus is the prophet that was uh, prophesied by Moses himself. And that as that prophet, anybody who rejects his word is going to be cut off. Right. So, again, there's this there's this two handed punch. There's salvation in Jesus name. But if you reject him, you're going to be cut off. Right. There, there's there's no other way. And we're going to see that tension as we as we go through. Uh, and then he he concludes there. Um, in 324, 25, he says, in addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also announced these days. Everything that's happening um, in this context was all foretold in the prophetic words, right? Uh, all, now, not all the bits and details, right? But all the big picture things, all the key items, the giving of the spirit, uh, the pouring out of the spirit, uh, all these events that are going to happen. And so uh, Peter and the other apostles, Paul later, they're going to make a very uh, key point that everything that's happening is exactly what God foretold to happen. And now we're seeing it being fulfilled in our times. 
wouldn't that be wild to live in that time? You know, and we're all fascinated with that. I think that's why most believers are completely fascinated by the end times. And every time something new happens, you know, like this war with Israel and Hamas right now, people say that and immediately, Stacy, do you think this is the end? Are we in the end times? And my answer is always, yeah, we're definitely in the end times. But we've been in the end times ever since Peter preached on the day of Pentecost 2000 years ago. Right. That started that whole sequence of events. But but we all uh, we all would love to be in that time when these things are being fulfilled. Right. It, but can you imagine it happening and being there and it not happening the way you expected it to? Right. Uh, when Jesus came and fulfilled everything that the prophets had talked about, literally, it did not look like anybody's blueprint. It didn't look like the Pharisees' blueprint. Sadducees didn't even have a blueprint because they didn't believe in the Messiah, right? They, didn't, they, didn't believe, they don't believe in the Messiah. They don't believe in the resurrection, right? They don't believe in angels or demons. We're about to run into them here again in a minute. So they didn't believe in much of anything. They didn't have a blueprint. The people who had gone out into the desert in Qumran to get away from the judgment of God that they were sure was about to fall, they didn't have a clear view of how God would fulfill it. But now that it's being fulfilled, Peter and the other apostles are telling them this is exactly what God foretold. And a big part of that is in verse 25. He says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. And so God has raised up his servant and has sent him first to you, right, to the people of Israel, to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. Right. See, that's the purpose. Jesus has come to turn Israel from their evil ways and then ultimately to turn uh, all the families of the earth from their evil ways. And we'll, we'll see that theme worked out in these first uh, 10 chapters of Acts or so. So that's the, um, that's the second sermon of Peter. And again, it comes in response to the healing of this man born lame. And we see the response to it, top of page 26. Um, this story continues. In fact, this whole episode runs from chapter three all the way through to chapter seven. And what Luke is going to be cataloging for us here in these chapters is, and, and I think this is really important. Luke is not in Acts. If, if you read very carefully, Luke is not trying to paint this picture for us that these early days of, of the church were the golden age that everything should be modeled on from that point forward. Because what he's going to show is, is that there's problems in, on the inside of the church. There's persecution on the outside, right? And all he's recording for us are the events that happened. I don't think that any of this is meant to be a, a blueprint for how everything is supposed to happen from that time forward. Um, and we'll talk again. We'll, we'll, we'll develop that as we go through. And so what we see in, from chapters 3, beginning with this healing of the man born lame, until chapter 7 is there's going to be problems on the interior of the church with, with things that happen, some really wild things we're probably going to get to today, uh, but also things externally. And one of the big things externally is how the early church, Peter, John, the other apostles, they're going to get crosswise with the leadership of Israel. And that ultimately is going to culminate with the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And, and so that's kind of what we're working for toward to show how tense things are during this time. Uh, so 4.1, uh, Acts 4.1, top page 26. 
He says, uh, now, as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the commander of the temple police and the Sadducees confronted them. Sideline note, really interesting. Those of you that went through the Gospel of Luke with me last year, Sadducees were very rarely mentioned. They, they showed up a couple of times. Almost all the emphasis was on the Pharisees. Here in the beginning of Acts, we're going to hear about the Sadducees more than we're going to hear about the Pharisees. Because the Sadducees were in control of the things that were happening in the temple. Uh, the Sadducees made up the priesthood. And so a lot of this early, um, early action is taking place in the temple. And so the Sadducees are there. So it's really interesting. Also, in the book of Acts, we're going to find out that many of the Pharisees that had been opposed to Jesus in the gospel era, they become believers afterwards, which is really wild uh, in, in, in a very significant way. And so we'll see that as we get a little bit further on in here. The, 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 the Pharisees were, you know, they're kind of the bad guys in Luke. The Sadducees are, they're just stepping it up in the book of Acts. And, we'll, and we'll, we'll, we'll see that as we get into this here. So here the Sadducees confronted them. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 2 says, they were uh, because they were provoked that they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection of the dead using Jesus as an example or, or you know, pointing to Jesus as the example of the resurrection. So notice, they're not upset about the healing, first off, right? They're upset what they're teaching, Jesus and the resurrection. And a big part of that is the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection at all. They didn't believe in any form of resurrection. And, and part of that is because they only believed that the first five books of the Bible, right, the book of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they only accepted that as the inspired word of God, right, preeminent above all else. Now, they read the other writings, but they didn't give them equal status as the writings of Moses. And so if, if, nothing, if something was not in uh, the book of Moses, then they didn't give it much credit, uh, which is wild to me because they denied the existence of angels and demons. And those are all in the book of Moses, first five books. So I don't know how they got square with that. Uh, you, you don't have concepts like the resurrection uh, clearly stated until the book of Daniel, and they didn't accept that. So, you know, they were, now this, this phrase is not accurate, but they were fairly what we would consider theologically liberal. They only picked and chose what they thought was inspired. And that was a really small bit of things. And it was primarily the things that agreed with what they wanted to think. Right? Um, so here, uh, they're really upset that they're proclaiming the resurrection of the dead and using Jesus to say that he was resurrected from the dead. Four, three, so they seized them and put them in custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. So we, we assume that there were women along with that. So a huge number comes to faith after hearing this second sermon by Peter. First sermon, 3,000 people are brought in. Second sermon, 5,000 people are brought in. So you can imagine the kind of impact this is having, right? This is... 8,000 people in a couple of days' time, this is going to upset the whole social order of everything, right? Uh, it's going to upset the power of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Uh, it's, it's going to cause some real problems. And so they're starting to get their hands on this and try to figure out what we need to do. 4-5, uh, Acts 4-5, middle of page 26, says, Now the next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, 
John and Alexander and all the members of the high priestly family. Uh, Annas and Caiaphas, we've heard about them earlier. Uh, they are son and son-in-law, and they would share the responsibility of the high priesthood during this time, uh, depending on what year it was, would depend on which one was actually the high priest. Uh, during this time, Annas is the high priest. Caiaphas was a little bit earlier. Uh, John and Alexander, we're not sure who that is. Um, there's no other reference to them. But notice they're, they're members of the high priestly family. Verse 4, 7, it says, Now after they had uh, had Peter and John stand before them, they asked the question, By what power and what name have you done this? And uh, the question there is, uh, is it about the preaching or is it about the healing? And we find out that it's really both. They're trying to figure out exactly what's happened here. Um, and that is, that is really important, what they say there, right? By what power or in what name? Again, um, when things were done, you often did it in the name of somebody else. And particularly for them, they want to know who, who is behind everything that's going on here, right? Who, who has the authority to allow you to do these things? That's really the question. And they're not going to like the answer for sure. Um, Acts 4, 8, bottom of the page. Now, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, Peter's already got the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is already with him. So this filling is, it's like, you know, the idea is Peter is bubbling up with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now working in him to give him what he needs to say, which is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. You remember that? When he talked in Luke about the giving of the Holy Spirit, he said, listen, they're going to put you before uh, judges and rulers. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't, don't fret about it before time. When you get there, the Holy Spirit is going to tell you what you need to say. Right. And that's what this is. So the Holy Spirit is, is filling Peter uh, and allows Peter to respond to them in a very powerful way. And so notice what he says. He says, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man by what means he was healed. Right. So even Peter wants to make clear what they're asking about. Right. So if, so if it's about the healing, then this is what happened. 410, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Nazarene. Right. Um, or Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you healthy. So they, man, he punches them right in the face, right? Um, so, well, if it's about the man being healed, we did it in the name of Jesus. Oh yeah, and that's the same Jesus that God just raised from the dead, right? Now that, remember, Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. So Peter's just jabbing it home for him, right? That's, that's how this has happened. Uh, 411. Now, this next statement is really critical. Notice what he says. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. That is a quote from Psalm 117, verse 22. Psalm 117, verse 22, which was considered um, in this time to be a messianic psalm. It was a psalm that gave some insight onto the nature and character of the Messiah when he would come. Uh, Jesus had used this same uh, psalm in reference to himself, same words. The stone that's been rejected, this very stone has become the cornerstone. But here, Peter adds in words that are not in that original psalm, and it's right after rejected. But it's been rejected by you, 
builders. You see that? You leaders who are building whatever it is you're building, you think you're building the kingdom, you have rejected the cornerstone, right? And the cornerstone is the key piece that the whole other building is built off of, right? You, you can't make a square building without the cornerstone. And so here, again, Peter is just letting them have it. Uh, you have rejected the Messiah. You have rejected the cornerstone exactly the way, you know, it's been foretold. And then 412, this is, this is, this is one of the more famous statements in the book of Acts here in these early uh, chapters. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. Wow. Um, man, Peter didn't know anything about like secret sensitive sermons or, you know, um, you know, he, he definitely had never heard, not heard about political correctness. Right. Um, you don't see Peter saying anything like, well, you know, all roads ultimately lead, lead to God. Right here. He's very clear. There is salvation in no one else. And, and I, I love the way he emphasizes it here. There is no other name under heaven given to people. And the idea there is there's no other name anywhere in the created realm by which people are going to be saved except by the name of Jesus. That's it, right? Whoa, man, that's rough. Um, unless it's true. And then if it's true, it's the best news you've ever heard in your life. Because you know the name of the person you need to go to if you want to figure out what's really real, right? Um, <laughs> now, Hold, hold all that in mind. We're gonna, that's that's going to come back around for us. Uh, verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 13, the middle of the page there. Uh, now, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John, they realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in response, <laughs> I mean, there's, I mean, what are you going to say? No, that's not what happened, right? Well, the guy's right there. The guy's been sitting there before the beautiful gate for 40 years. We can't deny that he's been healed. They say he's been healed in the name of Jesus. What are you going to do to refute that, right? There's nothing they can say. Uh, this, this is one of my favorite statements, too. Uh, notice they see Peter and John, and they realize that they were uneducated, um, so these are men who were, in, and the word that's used there probably in this context it means like without letters. So these are men who were not trained in the law. They weren't, you know, these are the, Peter and John were the type of men that were rejected by the rabbis to have deeper training. Y'all are probably aware of this, but in the first century, uh, as boys, you know, you know young, young boys were growing, they would often work in the family businesses and they would be going to synagogue. And in the synagogue, they would memorize scripture, right? They would hear the rabbis, uh, the, you know, Pharisees in this case, would be teaching, repeating, and they would, the Pharisees would be keeping an eye on the gifted boys, right? And when the boys turned 12 or 13, you know, the time of bar mitzvah to become son of a law, uh, the boys who were gifted and had good memories and, you know, did their homework doing their Rwanda Bible memorization, right? And got gold stars and thumbs up. They would often select from those boys to come in and give them more training. And many of those boys would become Pharisees and then many of them would become scribes and so forth and so on. Peter and John didn't make the cut, right? 
for whatever. Now, y'all know, John and his brother, they, they have the nickname, the Sons of Thunder in the Gospels. If I could bring that over into common parlance, that means they were the hell raisers, right? John and his brother, they're out partying and carrying on. They're not worried about getting the Iwana star, right? Peter, same thing. Peter, Peter is a fisherman. Uh, you're right. All of them are fishermen in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. These are backwoods guys, right? They don't, they're, they're not trained. They, they don't have a heavy education. Um, they're uneducated and they're untrained. Uh, the word in Greek there is idiotes. And it's not the same root that we get our word idiot from. <laughs> Although it's pretty close. I mean, it's... it's um, but the, the, the word meant uh, a private person or a lay person basically. And this, this word was often used um, in secular Greek to point somebody who was only uh, concerned about their own self, but they didn't do anything in, to get any kind of training to be a public service to everybody else. Because, you know, in the, in the Greek city-states, it was really important for everybody to aspire to be a good citizen, to become somebody who was beneficial to the whole populace, right? And so uh, Peter and John are not those kind of guys. These are simple fishermen. They, they didn't receive any extra training. And how in the world is it that they can, how can Peter speak like this, right? And, you know, we've been following Peter all through the Gospel of Luke. Yeah, where did this guy come from? Right? It is not explainable in any other way apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in Peter's life. Right? And, and, you know, Peter had been going to synagogue his whole life. And, and those passages had been put in his memory. And so those things are programmed in there so that at some point the Holy Spirit could bring them uh, out when they needed to be brought out. And then uh, they're amazed. What in the world is going on here? And, and then I love this. They recognize that they had been with Jesus. Ah, these guys have been with Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, um, when Jesus picks the men that are going to be the twelve, uh, it's, it, it's a fascinating passage because it says that before he makes the pick, he spent all night in prayer. He went out to the mountain and he spent all night in prayer before the next day he was going to pick the 12 that were going to be his 12 apostles. And everybody always said, well, what was he praying about? Well, it doesn't tell us what he was praying about. I, I, I've often made the joke. He's probably praying, Lord, are you father? Are you sure we want these 12? Please. No. Uh, but he spends all night in prayer about that. And then he gets up the next morning and picks the 12. And when Mark describes the purpose, first thing he says is he picked the 12 and he names the 12. And he says, so that they might be with him. That's the most important thing about them. That these are the guys that are now going to spend 24 seven with Jesus. They're going to be so inundated with Jesus that when people run into him, this is what they're going to realize. Ah, they've been with Jesus. Right. By the way, that's that's the true mark of a good disciple. When when somebody sees you and they recognize it looks like they've been spending time with Jesus, you know, something is rubbing off on you. Right. Uh, we, we we tend to turn into the people that we spend the most time with. Right. Uh, for good or for ill. And for that reason, y'all need to be praying for my wife. Let me just throw it out of there. Um, 414, now, since they saw the man who had been healed standing there, they had nothing in response. So they, what are you going to say? 415, bottom of page 27. It says, now, after they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, uh, that's just the word for the council. This is the Jewish council of elders um, that, that oversaw primarily the things related to the temple and also some other affairs. But here in the, in the first part of Acts, 
this is really the, the collection of the Jewish leadership. It says, Now they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign evident to all who live in Jerusalem has been done through them, and we can't deny it. However, so this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to preach or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter answered them and said, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you're going to have to decide that. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Uh, that takes us all the way back to the Gospel of Luke. If you remember when we were going through that Gospel, Luke makes a big point uh, to demonstrate uh, that we need to both see what Jesus does and we need to hear the word that explains what all that means. So we, we, we have that same thing happening here. Seeing and hearing, seeing and hearing. They've seen the miracle and now they need to hear the, the explanation of why that thing happened. And the same thing for the, for the apostles here. They're, they're just talking about what they've seen, the resurrection of Je crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, and also what they've heard, his teaching that gives significance to all that. 421, after threatening them further, they released them and they found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done for this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. So again, this is a guy who's literally been at the temple uh, from, you know, before the time Jesus uh, is born uh, in this context. And so here, nobody can deny what had happened. This guy's been there. He's not a plant. It's not some trick. Uh, so, so he get this, you know, this, this work gives confirmation that this is something miraculous, incredible. And again, even the leaders can't find a, a way to reason against it here. Um, now, uh, before we get into the next uh, little chat section here, any questions or comments on any of that so far? Uh, all right, we're doing good. Yeah, this, this stuff is so easy. Oh, man, it's like a breath of fresh air. Just read it and see what's happening. Uh, 423 through 31, it says, Now after they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they all heard this, they raised their voices to God and said, Master, that is, that is a very unique word that's not used hardly at all uh, for the Lord here. Uh, it, in fact, the, the word in Greek is despota, which we get the word despot from. Right. And so this means, you know, supreme master, the one who's in control over all things. Uh, master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth and the sea and everything in them. And you said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father, David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah. That is Acts, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Psalm 2. One of the most messianic psalms in all the scriptures. Um, and what they see there is there are these words, there's this connection that both the kings of the earth and the rulers would take their stand and be opposed both to God and to his Messiah. That's exactly what's happening right here, right? Even the leaders of Israel are standing opposed to the Messiah, their own Messiah here. Then 427, he says, For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate 
with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assemble together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Again, as they see Jesus fulfilling these prophetic texts, they understand that God had prepared for this to happen since way back, right? At least from the prophets. And then later when we get to the Paul, uh, Paul's letters, we find out it's much further than that. This is a plan that starts in eternity. And so as they see these things fulfilled, they just realize this, is, this was God's plan. And he's doing exactly what he intended to take place. Verse 29, 429, he says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and grant your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing signs and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. If you remember earlier in Acts 2, uh, they were given the ability to speak in foreign languages to the people from all the different nations that were there. Here, the Holy Spirit empowers them to speak with boldness, right? To speak the message with boldness. I also love what they pray. Notice, they don't pray, Lord, you know, these people are threatening us. Don't let us get in trouble. They pray, let us be bold, right? Help us to amp this thing up. <laughs> They've told us to shut up. We want to do it louder, right? Which is really powerful. Uh, also, as they pray for that built boldness, they pray for the signs and the wonders to continue to be uh, performed because that gives evidence that what they're preaching is true. What they're preaching is in line with reality. And so uh, here, uh, the Lord fills them with the Holy Spirit and they are able to speak with great boldness. Uh, Acts uh, 432, page 29, their story just continues on. This is, a, this is another summary statement. And it's going to set us up for what we're about to run into uh, in chapter 5. Really, really important transition. Uh, 432, it says, Now uh, the, the large group, or the full number, of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. Uh, that is the definition of fellowship that we heard earlier. You remember if, uh, in, back at the end of Acts 2, we heard that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That's what this fellowship is, right? They are of one heart and mind. They said that nobody's possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. And, and again, I'll just emphasize this again. This is not communism, right? I, I hear, I read scholars that bring this up all the time. See, the early church was communistic. You know, that is an anachronism that does not fit this. Communism is one of the most twisted philosophical governmental systems that has ever existed. And the idea there is we have a small central group of people that collects everybody's goods and distributes it to everybody as we see fit but the people that they distribute it to is the small inner group. That's what communism is, right? And it's forced upon you. You don't get to opt out, right? Notice, this is happening by common consent. When the Holy Spirit moves among people, now this is gonna sound odd, right? But one of the first things that he kills is the individual. And, and you, you, do you remember this teaching of Jesus? I don't know if y'all remember this. Jesus, when he, was, when he came and he was teaching in Luke, 
He got into all this crazy teaching about, listen, if you're going to be my follower, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross and you're going to have to follow me daily. In other words, every day you're going to have to get up and kill yourself because your worst enemy is yourself. Right. The enemy that you wake up every day with that's going to try to short circuit everything good in your life is not external to you. It is you. And the quicker you realize that, the quicker life can start to fall into place. Right? I, I, uh, there was uh, some of you may have done the study back in the early 2000s called the Truth Project that uh, Focus on the Family put out. And in one of the, one of the end uh, videos in that series, it was a series of videos you'd watch and then have discussion about. And in one of those last videos, they were interviewing a guy named Dalrymple, a Theodore Dalrymple. He is a psychologist that worked in the UK with the criminally insane for a number of years. And Dalrymple was not a Christian at all. But in this interview, they, they were asking him how he had made some major breakthroughs with his clients and whatnot. And Dalrymple said, he said, it was, it was really uh, incredible. Uh, he said, one day I had this epiphany that just came out of nowhere. And he said, you know, what we had been trained to do is, is that these people are not connected with reality because they've never found themselves. So we spent all of our time trying to help people find themselves. He said, and then one day I realized that they were having problems because of themselves. And the more they found themselves, the more trouble they got into. He said, so I had to reverse the thing. And he said, I started to teach from the perspective of you are your greatest problem and you need to lose yourself. Right? And, and they were showing this not, you know, as saying this is what Jesus taught. But here's a guy who's just making observations about life in a psychological profession. He's come to the conclusion that's pretty much what Jesus says to us. Right. In order to make the, the best of life, you got to die to yourself. You got to pick up your cross. Follow me. Right. This is what this is starting to look like. As they're following Jesus, the Holy Spirit is motivating them not to be concerned about their own interests first, but to give up on themselves and be concerned about everybody else. Does that sound familiar? That sounds a lot like Philippians right? in Paul's letters, right? Don't be concerned with your own interests, but instead put on the mind of Christ. Be concerned about everybody else. Uh, take on uh, the same mindset that Jesus had, who even though he existed, uh, in the form of God, he did not ex uh, consider his godness something he had to grasp at. But instead, he emptied himself, took on the form of a slave to save all of us. Right. And that's what's happening here. This is what the spirit does. This is what the spirit is trying to work among these people to build fellowship. And notice it, it comes voluntarily. It's not forced on them. Right. Where are you? Where are you yeah, looking? Oh, oh, 427. Yeah. Uh, the anointing of Jesus in 427. Uh, yeah. Uh, the uh, anointing in the Old Testament is when somebody is set apart um, and anointed with oil. Right. That's where the word comes from. Anointed with oil. And, and that anointing would show symbolically in a lot of cases that they were set apart for some service. So the priests were anointed, right? Uh, but the big one is, y'all all know this, the word Messiah means the anointed one, right? So, so here there, there's probably a word play going on there. 
your servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And the idea here is that Jesus, through his crucifixion and resurrection, he has been anointed, right? He's been uh, qualified and shown forth to be the Messiah, right? To function as the Messiah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. In fact, I was going to say something about that and totally forgot about it. Uh, so, yeah, so, so there uh, he's been anointed, qualified and equipped for, to fill the role that God has set him apart for. That is to be the Messiah, to be the anointed one, to be the king uh, over all Israel and over all the nations. Yeah, gr uh, great question. Uh, anybody else? Any questions or comments on any of that? All right. Uh, back in 433, it says, uh, now the apostles were given testimony with great power to the resurrection of Jesus and great grace was on all of them. And there was not a needy person among them because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, bought the pro proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles feet. And then this was distributed for each person's basic needs. Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth, uh, he's from the island of Cyprus. That's going to be significant a little bit later. The one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated the son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. A um, couple of things here. A lot of people, when they read this, they assume that everybody is selling everything that they have. Well, that's just not the case. Because if you sell everything you're going to have, well, where are y'all going to live? How's everybody going to stay together, right? So, so the idea here probably is, is that people are selling um, things that they have in excess or things that they don't necessarily need in order to fund the people who do have needs. And you can, you can actually see that with Barnabas. It says he sold a field that he owned. And the implication of that is, is that he had several fields and he sold one of them so that he can contribute to this. So, um, so this is not like they're just selling everything that they have. Instead, they're, you know, they're using some common sense in the thing. Uh, people who have excess are probably selling what they have in order to uh, support the needs of the community. And, and again, I, I want to emphasize this before we get to chapter five, because this is really important. Uh, this is what the Holy Spirit is working in and amongst their midst. This is how he's developing fellowship. Uh, in many of the prayers in the New Testament, uh, not many, there's a handful where Paul will say he will pray for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is mentioned in several contexts. And the idea is this is the fellowship that the Holy Spirit is seeking to create amongst us. Right. That's the idea there. It's not just some nebulous out in left field term. It means that as the Holy Spirit works through each and every one of us, he is turning us into people that are not concerned first for our own needs, but that we have a mind toward our other brothers and sisters in Christ. And how can I take what I have to help take care of them so that we're not in need? Right. So, so that so that everybody's taken care of in this. That's the spirit that 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 the spirit is working out in and amongst them here. And so here, uh, Barnabas is an example of somebody who's done that. He is mentioned because, as you know, Barnabas is going to come, become significant here in, uh, here in a couple of chapters. And so he's introduced here as somebody who is, right, he is following the leading and the filling of the Spirit in uh, selling what he has to help for the common needs of the early church. And then 
Boom, chapter 5. Y'all don't know what's about to happen. If you read Acts, you know what's about to happen here. This story upsets a lot of people. Yeah, Brad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, yeah, I should have asked that. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. 436. Yeah. Well, I guess 437. Uh, it says, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Yeah. Just communicating, like, total submission. Yeah. And, and, and I think, let's see, um, and it's, it's also important. Let me see. There's another connection here. In, in, in the next episode, it seems like that they are, they are bringing these proceeds uh, and the apostles are overseeing the way it's distributed, probably because they know what's going on in you know, the larger context of everything. Uh, but that's also going to cause a problem in chapter 6 because some people are going to be saying, hey, we're getting overlooked in what's going on here. But, but I, th I think the idea yeah, is that they're submitting to the apostles, but they're also seeing them as the best people to manage what's, what's going on here, you know, kind of having a central uh, group that's, that's overseeing it. That's, that's, a, that's a great question. Yeah. So uh, ch chapter 5, uh, verse 1. Boy, if y'all know this story, you know this is... Where in the world? What in the world's going on here? This is a good one. Tell you what, yeah, boy, this if this happened in church today, uh, help us. Um, five one through eleven, eleven, Ananias and Sapphira. Now a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge. Underline that. With his wife's knowledge. Um, and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there's the same thing that Brad was asking the question about. They're, they're doing what everybody else has been doing. They're letting uh, the apostles uh, deal with this, you know, uh, to figure out who this goes to and so forth and so on. So, uh, so what are they doing? Well, they, they've just agreed to uh, sell it and keep a portion of it back, right? And Peter is given insight on this in 5.3. Then Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds from this field? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So the problem is not selling the money and keeping part of it back. The problem is selling part of it and telling them it's the whole thing, right? Trying to put on a good outward show. Yeah, well, this is the money we got from the field. And Peter is made aware of it. I'm telling you what, this is not a good time to be lying to people, right? Uh, Peter is given prophetic insight. And um, a, a couple of important things. And again, a lot of people bypass this. What he says, why has Satan filled your heart? The same thing that happened with Judas, right? Satan entered into Judas's heart and he went and betrayed Jesus. Here, Satan has filled Ananias', Ananias heart with this lie, right? So here we go. He's back again. And, and everybody thinks that's some kind of funny figurative speech there. But that's what's going on. The adversary, right? The, the devil, the father of all lies. He's planted this idea in Ananias' mind. And it's, it's disastrous, Right? Because it's made him lie to the Holy Spirit. And that, that's what I love about this. Peter doesn't say, why have you lied to us? He says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit and you've lied to God. Uh, yeah, yeah, Sharon. So 
let me repeat the question for the re recording. I always forget to do that. And then I, I, I can't hear it and I can't remember what it is. So the question is, did Satan fill him and that caused him to do it? Or did he have this idea and then, you know, Satan just amped the thing up a little bit? First thing I would say is the devil can't make us do anything, right? But he is really good at throwing choice ideas out there, right? And so the idea of, of Satan filling his heart here, uh, the heart in the, in the first century and, you know, even in the Old Testament context, the heart is the core of your being where all of your thoughts and emotions and desires are. So when he, when he fills his heart, you know, the idea is he's just throwing that thing out there and then it's taking root, uh, so, I, so the answer that I've given the question is, yeah, it's it's all those things, you know. It's <laughs> it's kind of the it's it's kind of the um, it, it's kind of the thing of the uh, yeah, the devil does that, but it can only flower where there's receptivity. And how many of us have had bad ideas, you know? I mean, me and my. I mean, me, me and my wife have often, you know, an idea will come in. I say, well, you know, is this something we should do? And as we think about it back and forth, eventually we're like, no, that's not the right thing to do, you know. And so we decide not to do it. And, and again, they're doing this, you know, with each other's compliance in it, both Ananias and Sapphira, right? He does it and she is in on the plan. So it's very clear that they've decided that we're going to we're going to work this thing a little bit. Now, what we're not told is the motivation in it, you know. You know, uh, that that's kind of left out. All, the only thing that we need to know is this was a really bad idea because it's, you know, it's 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 uh, deceiving, not the apostles, but it's trying to deceive God himself. And y'all know, y'all know, that's the root of all of our sins. The only reason we sin is because we think that somehow God is not going to see our sin. Right. I mean, think about it for a minute. That's the only reason you do it. Well, you know, he's probably busy. He's not, you know, it's just the little white lie. I can probably get away with that. I mean, what's the big deal? We sell the, we sell the field. We'll give them 75%. We'll keep 25%. You know, he's probably not worried about that. You know, so it's, it's the idea. And, and, and let me say this too, because part of the reason that makes this story so wild and crazy is everybody's like, man, this seems, well, wait a minute. Let me read what happens and then let me make my comments. So y'all look at the, y'all know what happens. Uh, verses five, six, and seven. It says, now when Ananias heard these words, he dropped dead and great fear came on all who heard. Oh, yeah, it did. Five, six, the young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out and buried him. There was an interval of about three hours. Then his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. So Ananias hears this and he drops dead. Now I, I, I want to I point out something here that's really critical. There have been, out of five commentaries I've read, three of the commentaries talk about Peter cursing Ananias here. Look at what Peter says. He doesn't curse Ananias. He just questions him, why have you done this? And then Ananias drops dead, right? Uh, and then everybody's like, well, maybe he was overcome with shock and he had a heart attack. Listen, the implication here is that God has smoked this man, right? Uh, and in fact, in, in, in Corinthians, in the letters to the Corinthians, Paul talks about, there's a really strange passage, and I meant to look this up, I can't remember which chapter it's in. There's a really strange passage where Paul talks about, listen, if we would discipline ourselves, we wouldn't need to be disciplined by the Lord. And so we need to root out the sinfulness that's amongst us, right? And, and particularly the things that are working against fellowship and the unity of the church. 
And then he goes on to say that, listen, because y'all aren't seeking unity, that's why some of you are sick and some of you are even dead. Right. The one thing that the Lord will not allow in the church, at least at this point, are the things that breed disunity. And this is what this work is doing. Right. Whatever the devil is implanting in his mind, this idea is ultimately going to instead of bringing everybody together, it's going to cause disunity. Right. It's going to tear the people apart. Do you hear what Ananias and Sapphira did? He sold part of his land and then lied about it, right? Well, maybe we can get away with that. Maybe whatever. So, so this is seemingly inconsequential thing, right? The significant thing is they're lying against God. They're lying against the Holy Spirit. And so these very punitive measures are taken. Uh, Y'all probably, um, probably know the story of Achan in the Old Testament when they were going in to take over the Holy Land and the Lord had forbidden them to keep any of the idols and you know the because a lot of times the idols would be made out of gold and silver they were very uh, valuable and God had, had commanded them not to keep any of those things you're to burn them you're to destroy them and Achan decides eh, if I keep a few of these and hide them in my satchel it'll be okay right and then they're defeated at their next battle and they're trying to figure out what's going on and God tells them well somebody just done what I told them not to do right and they bring Achan out, you know, long story. They find out who it is. They bring Achan out and the Lord takes him out uh, because this is a, this is a treachery that all it's, although it seems like a small thing, it completely undermines the greater work that the Lord God is doing here. Right. Uh, I mean, goodness gracious, it, it is severe. There's no doubt about it. Um, now, look at what happens next. Five, eight. So here comes Sapphira in her, the wife. 5.8, tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the field for this price? And she said, yes, for that price. So see, they've already agreed as to say, well, let's, let's you know, we sold it for 100000 but let's just tell Peter we sold it for 75000 right? And we'll send that in. And she, she says, yeah, that's what we did. 5.9, then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Deuteronomy 6.16, Jesus, when he's tempted in the wilderness by the devil, right? Thou shalt not put the Lord your God to the test, right? And so this is the very thing that, that Peter uh, uh, accuses her of. They've lied to him, and now they're putting the spirit to the test um, to see if he's, you know, really paying attention to what's going on here. And then he says this, look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Now, Peter's not cursing her. He's just making a statement, Right? <laughs> 510, instantly she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. And then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Uh, 511, that's the first time the word church is used in the book of Acts. And then isn't it interesting that it shows up at this juncture where we get this story of everybody selling everything and then this uh, punitive act where Ananias and Sapphira, they, they try to lie uh, to God against the Holy Spirit. And um, they are immediately taken out because of it. Now, let me say, in my experience, if the Lord struck down everybody who was working against the unity of the church, I would have a whole, there would be uh, countless bodies piled up all over the place. This is a unique occurrence here at the beginning of all things to show how serious the Lord is about these things getting founded on the right foundation, right? And for whatever reason, 
uh, he doesn't do these things anymore, right? If lying to the Holy Spirit and you know, all these other treacherous things that we're going to see happening here, if, if, if the Lord still acted this way today, again, there'd be a lot of people being in a lot of trouble, right? So, so here, this, this, this foundational act, it seems weird to us, but basically what's happening here is that the Ananias and Sapphira are working against the work of the Holy Spirit that's trying to unite everybody together, one heart and one mind, right? Right? That's what we heard earlier. Do they have the same one heart and mind that everybody has? No. They're thinking we can trick and deceive and keep some things back for our own benefit. And the Lord says, no, we're not going to do that, right? And um, one of the things that I've learned in my life, particularly from raising children, is that if you do discipline right one time, you very rarely have to do it much more after that because the cost is too high. If you set the cost too high, right? Now, fortunately, I had daughters and, and I could wither them just by saying I was disappointed in them. You know, I've watched my, you know, my brother-in-law, sister-in-law's raise boys. And I'm pretty sure I'd be in prison by now if I had boys. Uh, man. Uh, but if, and I think that's what the Lord is doing here. This thing is, this thing is extreme because if you do it right the first time, this is what happens. Fear takes over the people. Oh, well, we better be careful. The Lord really is paying attention here. And so that's going to set the course for some things that are going to happen. Because this is just, this is one of the first tests of the early church. And things are going to get rougher as we go along. And so the way the Lord responds here is really, really powerful. Uh, and we're going to see other things like this as we go. Not, not quite to this level. But it's a strange, I'm not going to lie, it's a strange story. I mean, it's really wild. And, you know, if I were Luke, this is one of those places where, where I think, to me, this confirms the reality of what Luke is talking about. Because if I were Luke going through collecting all these stories of the early church and I came to this one, I would be like, you know, I think we're going to leave that one out. I don't even know. I don't even know how to explain the thing. And notice there's almost no explanation of it. He just states this is what happened. And then he moves on and he's probably right. You think, boy, I hope nobody asks any questions about this. Uh, I don't know what to say. So really, really strange story. But again, very important because this shows how uh, the unity and the fellowship of the early church, everybody being of one heart and mind is foundationally important to the Lord. And he can't let that get short circuited too, too early here. All right, y'all, now that's a good place for us to stop. Bottom of page 30. Y'all read the rest of chapter 5 for next week and chapter 6. Uh, those we're going to move through relatively quickly. Not a lot happens there that's difficult to understand. Uh, go ahead and read Stephen's speech in Acts 7 as well. Uh, we, 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 might, we might get close to that. I, I don't think we'll get into it next week. But you can go ahead and, and look at that and read it to see how this whole uh, larger episode um, finishes out there. Stacy? Yes. If you can get someone's mind, their heart will be sure to That's absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, grab their attention hard and, you know, it's hard to let go. Yep. All right, y'all, we're, we're right at time. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we will uh, turn loose. Father, we thank you for the ways you bless us and provide for us and sustain us. And we ask that you'd give us wisdom and insight into your word with some wild stuff we read today. And even as I read it, I'm not fully uh, sure that I understand all the significance of it. But I do know this, that in these early days, you were uh, absolutely uh, serious 
about laying this foundation that, that would become a model in one sense for all the other churches that would come later. And that is uh, you are working through your Holy Spirit to knit us together, to make us of one heart and mind so that like Jesus himself, we'll be willing to pour out our lives for our other brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we do that, other people will be drawn to the reality of the things that we say uh, we believe and the faith that we say that we pro profess uh, that can't be explained in any other way except for the incredible work that you're doing within us as we die to ourselves so that Jesus can live in and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask you to uh, help us in all the ways that we need help because it is difficult to follow these things in the midst of a culture that is twisted and perverse, that has rejected the very idea of truth itself, and uh, where everybody is out for their own gain and for their own good at the detriment of everybody else. So, Father, uh, help us to be lights shining in the midst of this darkness as we, too, spend time with Jesus so everybody will recognize us as the people who have been with him. And we ask all this for his great and powerful namesake. Amen.